Usually as we begin, I tell you to take your Bibles and turn to a passage of Scripture. Well, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. And so if you want to follow along in your copy of God's Word, you can turn to the book of Proverbs. But also, as you came in, some of you, maybe most of you, received a sheet that at the top says Proverbs about money. And that is our text for today. We're going to be skipping around Proverbs. There are several verses there that we're going to be looking at. And so if you've got Proverbs about money, what you can do is is use that as your guide. And then later this afternoon or during the sermon or whenever, you can go and mark those verses or or, or jot notes down to those verses uh, if you would like to. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about improving our homes. And as we've talked about improving our homes, we've talked about different ways that we can improve our family relationships and the ways that we can improve our our relationships with one another, our relationships even within church, our relationships with the Lord in the midst of that. And today we come to that time when we figure out how to pay for it all. Here's the thing. When you do a home improvement project at home, there's always the bill, right? There's always that moment when you realize you finished the work or you're getting ready to do the work. And you realize that the time has come that you've got to pay. And the truth is, hopefully, you had an idea of what you were going to pay before you paid. In fact, hopefully you knew what you were going to pay before you started. Because sometimes what happens, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a movie that came out a few years ago called The Money Pit. Remember that movie? Just let me see if you've seen it. All right. Money Pit, and I can't remember who was in it, but there were two people in it, and they buy this house, and they get a good deal on it, and every step they take, something else breaks, right? And sometimes part of the problem in doing home improvement projects is every step you take, something breaks. A few weeks ago, we had just moved into our house. We hadn't been there very long at all, and we, uh, I cooked mashed potatoes one night for supper. My boys love mashed potatoes. And all God's people said, amen. That's right. Mashed potatoes, it's hard to beat them. You get your little potatoes, you cook them up, you mash them up, you put some butter, some sour cream a little bit maybe, some uh, salt and pepper in there, a little milk. Unbelievable. Here's the thing. In our houses and places that we lived previously, there was never a problem with putting potato peelings down the disposal. So you just peel the potatoes in the disposal and you put it down there. Well, at this house, the new house, we discovered there's a problem putting potato peelings down the disposal. As we were finishing up and washing up the dishes, suddenly the water that was supposed to be going down the drain was coming back up the drain. So we called, we have a home, you know, you get a home warranty one year in, we call the people, they're going to call a plumber out, all that kind of stuff, plumber gets out. And the first plumber that came, came and told us that we had major structural issues with the pipes. And began to tell us how he was going to move a pipe here and there and all over the place. And I thought, I just wanted some mashed potatoes. (laughs) And so, he came and we had to pay the house call for him to tell us that he was going to have to do this. But we weren't comfortable with him doing this. We were going to get a second opinion. So we had to pay the house call for him to come. And then we had to pay the house call for another plumber to come. And the other plumber comes out and says, you don't have any structural problems. It's been that way for the 12 years the house has been in existence. And he took the big long snake and he did it down and eventually everything cleared out. Well, here's the problem. When we got through, we had two plumber's bills. And I told Susan, that's the most expensive mashed potatoes we've ever had in our lives. 
We didn't know the cost before we started. Part of the reason that homes are in such jeopardy today is because this issue of money never really comes up until you're in the midst of the marriage. Until you're in the midst of a difficult time. Until something happens and you've got to deal with the issue of money. And the truth is we're not educating our young people. We're not educating people in the church. We're not educating people about what Scripture says about money. You know that the Scriptures say as much about money as any other subject. Every time I preach on money, I'll tell you this, because sometimes people say, why do you talk about money? Why are you going to preach on that? Listen, Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus talked about it that much, it must be pretty important. Amen? And as you're going to see, there are verses in Proverbs all about money. Now, reminding you, Proverbs is the book of wisdom, right? Wisdom is applied learning, how to live out what you know. And so what we have in Scripture and Proverbs is this understanding of we need to live in a way that we can glorify God even in how we handle money. So we're going to start today. I'm going to give you all four points right at the beginning, all right? In a summary statement. And then we're going to talk about, kind of break that down about what that means. Here's the first thing I want you to understand, the summary statement. The key to money is to gain it honestly, esteem it accurately, and share it generously, or it will destroy you and your family. The key is to gain it honestly, esteem it accurately, and share it generously, or it will destroy you and your family. Now you say, Brother Lyle, you're being a little melodramatic there. That word destroy, that's a little strong. Maybe hurt, maybe damage, maybe cause a few problems. But the truth is, Scripture says over and over and over again, if we are not careful, that money will destroy us. Now we know, just in life in general, we can see that money destroys people, but we see them as the big news stories, the Enrons, the WorldComs, those those big corporate companies that get greedy, and as a result, they lose everything. We see it in in people like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker that that, that were big-time evangelists, and they let money get a hold of them, and it destroyed all that they have. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us that money can destroy us no matter what's going on, if we allow it. The first point under there is used unwisely, money will destroy. Used unwisely, money will destroy. On your handout about Proverbs about money, there are three verses there, starting with Proverbs 22.7, that just tell us some of the things that happen when we don't use money wisely. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. I'm still waiting someday to walk into a bank with that posted above the teller. Right? The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. The truth is, Scripture teaches us that when you get in debt, you are owing to, beholden to, you are a slave to, to the person that gave you the money in the first place. Now here's the thing. As a nation, we don't believe that. How do I know that? It's because we continue to get more and more in debt 
every day. And I'm not talking about the national trade deficit. I'm talking about personal debt. I'm talking about you and me, personal debt. There's this uh, thing out there called consumer debt. Consumer debt is not investment debt. That's not mortgage. That's not any of that stuff. That's credit cards, things that depreciate upon value. That's things you're not investing in. And this number just staggered me. Consumer debt in our country is 2.5397 trillion. 2.5397 trillion. That's about a 6% annual increase. And here's the amazing thing to me. If you just took the debts that were on credit cards alone right now, you would have almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt. A trillion. The average family has close to $10,000 on credit cards. The borrower is a slave to the lender. You know, they used to say there were two classes of people. There were the haves and the have-nots, right? The haves and the have-nots. Did you know there's really a third class that's been added to? There's the haves, the have-nots, and the have-not-paid-for-what-they-haves. Right? And the truth is, if you look at all of the statistics, there are a lot more people in the have-not-paid-for-what-they-haves than the other two groups. Now, here's the thing. When you, as a family, get into that situation, it puts external stress on you that was never intended to be there. Look at this statistic that's on your handout. You can write in there. 56% of divorcees say that money was the number one reason they got a divorce. Now, if you look at all the official documents, it'll say irreconcilable differences. We talked about that. But if you look at what they say after it's over, what's the root of it? The number one cause of conflict, the number one cause of problems, the number one reason they divorced is because of money. Now, here's the reality. That means that if 56% of the people think if they handled their money better, divorce might not have been what it resulted. 56%. And the problem is that when you get into that kind of debt, you end up going into places you don't intend to. And as a result, the earnings, the, even the money you make causes problems. Proverbs 15, 6 says, There is treasure in the house of the godly. Mention that, that when you're living for God, whatever you have it is enough and it's treasure. But the earnings of the wicked bring trouble. There is treasure in the house of the godly, but the earnings of the wicked bring trouble. Proverbs 9, verse 17 and 18 is, a, is an interesting little passage. It's, it's really speaking more of, of something like adultery, but the idea there is that stolen water is refreshing. Food eaten in secret tastes best. That's not, the, that's not what Scripture's not telling us that's true. That's what someone's quoting. And then Scripture refutes that and says, but little do they know that the dead are there, her guests are in the depths of the grave. What it's saying there is that we need to understand that if we don't use money wisely, if we don't gain it honestly, which is the next thing we're going to talk about in a minute, if we don't do all that, then what happens is we become a slave to money. I was watching a, uh, an introduction to a documentary that ran in the, the early 90s, uh, a documentary called Affluenza. 
I know we've all heard of influenza. Some of you may have heard of affluenza. And affluenza is that we have gotten so much in our country that we think we don't have enough. They said in the 1950s, some of you remember the 1950s. I don't. I don't remember the 70s, but some of you remember the 50s. In the 1950s, consumer satisfaction or contentment with what they have was much higher than today. And that people in the 50s had much less than we do today. Do you realize that consumer confidence and contentment is, was higher during the Depression than it is today? I watched a car commercial in this documentary that was with the uh, uh, for a car, you know, in the 1950s, and it was the new Ford coming out. And I don't know what kind of Ford it was. Some of you car buses, like, what kind of Ford was it? What did it look like? I don't remember. It was a Ford. But the whole image was that this family was coming around, and this was something that was a great privilege for them to have. It was an honor for them to be able to have it. It was an interesting contrast to today when it's not it's something that would be great to have. It's something you've got to have. What was interesting to me as I watched this is they said that the average home in the 1950s was 900 square feet. The average home has increased every year since then. The average home today is around 2,000 square feet and people aren't satisfied with the amount of storage space they have. They interviewed one guy that asked why he had a four-car garage. He said most of it's just storage space. You can never have enough garages. We've got our priorities out of whack. And misusing money destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys people that are trying to live for the Lord. Here's the second thing that we need to know about money. The second important thing is we must gain it honestly. We must gain it honestly. Look at Proverbs 13.11 out of the English Standard Version on your handout. It says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You know, sometimes you talk to people and they say, Boy, I'll tell you what, if I could just do this or if I could just do that, everything would be all right. And one of the things that you hear sometimes is that if I could just win the lottery... Everything be all right. One of the biggest days in gambling happened yesterday, right? They don't advertise it as that so much. It's called the Kentucky Derby. I'm not getting on to it if you watched it. We'll talk later if you bet on it. But it's a big gambling day. And gambling's just a part of our society. People do it. You can get in the morning lines and the papers, see what, who's favorite over what, and all those kind of things. But people think by playing chance that someday they'll strike it rich. Here's the problem. Those people that strike it rich are often unhappy just years or months later. Listen to this. This is a woman named Evelyn Adams who said winning, isn't, winning the lottery isn't always what it's cracked up to be. She won twice for a total of $5.4 million in the mid-80s. Today, all the money is gone and Adams lives in a trailer. I won the American dream, but I lost it too. It was a very hard fall. I'd call it rock bottom. Everybody wanted my money. Everybody had their hand out. I never learned one simple word in the English language 
No. I wish I had a chance to do it all over again. I'd be much smarter about it now. I was a big-time gambler. I didn't drop a million dollars. It was a lot of money. I made mistakes. Some I regret. Some I don't. I'm human. I can't go back now. I can just go forward one step at a time. Now, her story is in a book about eight lottery winners who lose their millions. There was another one named Bud Post who won $16.2 million. And afterwards he said, I wish it would have never happened. It was totally a nightmare. Suzanne Mullins won $4.2 million in 1993. Now she's deeply in debt. You see, she borrowed 197000 based on what she had won, and she agreed to pay it through the checks that came in. But when she stopped making payments on the loan, when her lump sum came in, she had to use it for something else. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Now here's the thing. Why does it matter that you gain it little by little? Or you do it by hard, earnest work? Here's the reality. What happens is, when you get it little by little by little, then you gain the wisdom that you need to control it as it comes. We've talked about, on different occasions, the tragedy that is in our society of these young movie stars, young Hollywood people that just seem to have lives that are completely out of control. Here's the reason. They got too much too fast. And they don't know what to do with it. We must gain it honestly. Look at what Proverbs 28.6 says. Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. What it says is basically in your life sometimes you're going to have an option. You can go left and be dishonest and rich, or you can go right and be poor and honest. And it says in Proverbs that it is better to be poor and honest than dishonest and rich. Now the reality is sometimes in our society we've done that, that messaging given. If you ask somebody, would you rather be rich or would you rather be honest, a lot of times in our society they'll say, I'd rather be rich. And there are pressures on some of you in this room on a pretty regular basis to fudge the numbers just a little. To tweak something here, to go around something there, just little bit by little bit. And as a result, you become dishonest and rich. Look at verse, chapter 20, verse 7 out of Proverbs. Again, talking about how integrity is important. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Sometimes when I talk to people or I read things online about why people work so many hours and go after it so much, it's because they want to leave something for their kids. Uh, one of those statements that is always around is that we want our kids to have more than we have, to be better off than we were. And as a result, you work yourself to death and as overworking yourself and going after it and, and gaining money, but maybe not in the best way possible, you rip from the kids the very things they need. A loving family, a good example, a spiritual foundation. Josh McDowell, who is a, you know, works with youth a lot in Christian circles, gave youth the opportunity to write 25 words to their parents. He said, if you could write any 25 words to your parents, what would you write? And this is what one child wrote. I love you, 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 
please love each other. You see, we live in a place where it seems like our kids want more stuff all the time. Now the truth is, it's easy to fall into that trap. Thinking, well, you know what would make them happiest if I just gave them more. And so I've got to work more hours. I've got to gain it in different ways. I've got to get as much as I can. Can as much as I get. And then give it to my kids. But the truth is, kids may say they want more stuff, but what they want is more you. I've mentioned this, but we, we already are fighting that battle with our oldest. Every time we talk about going out and a store is mentioned, he really wants to go to Target. Because Target has a whole Lego aisle. Every time. Daddy, how much money can we spend on a toy today? Yesterday we told him if we found one that cost nothing, we'd get it for him. So we went on a search for a free toy. Somehow stores didn't want that. But I, I know it's, it, it's tempting. You know, they want something. It, seems, it just seems like they want more stuff. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us we need to gain money honestly and use it wisely, esteem it correctly, we'll talk about it in a minute, because it's then and we spend time with our families that we understand they just need more of you. On your handout there, Proverbs 19.22, on the list of verses out of the message says, It's only human to want to make a buck. But it's better to be poor than to be a liar. I like the way that puts it because it is only human to want to make a buck. The truth is most of us in our lives are not wrong in saying, You know what? I'd like to have some money. I'd like to be financially stable. That's important. But it's better to be poor than to be a liar. We must gain it honestly. Here's the third thing. We must esteem it accurately. Esteem means just how you think of something, what you think about it, what what, what your perception is of it. And the truth is, we must esteem money accurately. Here's the uh, verse that I was talking about in Proverbs 18.11. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it as an unscalable wall. Now here's what I, what I, what I think about when I think of that verse. My mind immediately goes to that word, imagine. And when I was growing up, we didn't have Nick Jr. and Noggin and Disney Channel and all that kind of stuff. We had, in West Tennessee, Channel 10. PBS TV, and you had Sesame Street followed by Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And my favorite part of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was when Mr. Rogers would sit down and you'd go to make-believe town. And you would imagine this whole other place. And when I think of that verse and how imagination is, I think about Mr. Rogers in that red sweater, sitting on that couch, telling me how I had to imagine. And then in my imagination, anything could be possible. And the reality is, in your imagination, anything is possible, but at some point we have to come back to reality. And what it's saying here is the rich man thinks of his wealth as his unscalable wall, but it's all in his imagination. And when you give too much credit to money, then what happens is money will take you along for a ride. 
Look at Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Don't toil or wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the blink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies off into the wild blue yonder. Here's what it's saying. We must understand money's place in our lives, that it is not the most important thing. You know, Jesus, when he was teaching on money, would talk about the fact that it's all about where your heart is. When uh, the New Testament writers were writing, one of them says, not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the point is, money in itself is not bad or good. It is, as we say, amoral. It doesn't have any morals. Money is a sheet of paper. It's how you esteem it, how you think about it, how you long for it, what you do with it that makes it good or bad. And what it says here is don't wear yourself out. Don't get exhausted trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. And then I love the picture it says here. In one version it says, when you cast your eye upon it, it will sprout wings like an eagle and fly off in the wild blue yonder. Now here's the thing, in their day and time, the only thing they knew or that was the fastest flyer around was an eagle. I've heard that eagles can fly about 50 miles an hour when they're being chased up to 75 and when they're really in trouble and having to die, they can go up to 100 miles an hour. And the idea here is the reason that we have to be careful what we think about money is because when you think about it and you get it, it's gone. Easy come, easy go. We all know that, right? And the truth is that what is interesting to me about how money can really get into our lives is when we talk about it in a home improvement kind of sense is this very uh, amoral thing that's just a piece of paper, that's just a credit card statement, that's just a bank understanding, all of that, while it is fleeting and fast and can fly away like an eagle, is the number one cause of problems in marriages. The reality is that as Americans, we esteem it more than we should. And we don't live by the biblical principles that God calls us to. God calls us to save it. God calls us to spend it in wise ways. And God calls us to be a steward of it and to give it. He doesn't need to say anything about hoarding it. He didn't say anything about, about, about getting way too much or spending too much. He says that it all ought to be in balance. And as a culture, we are completely out of balance. Look at these numbers here. It's just amazing to me about savings in America and how we're spending our money. In 1984, the average American saved 10.8% of his income. In 1994, the average American saved 4.8% of his income. In 2004, the average American spent one, saved 1.8% of his average income. Now look, just one year later, in 2005, the average American saved negative 0.5%. Now I know it's been a while since I've been in a math class with percentages, but negative is not really good. Right? And so what that means is, as Americans on average now, we are spending more than we have. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourselves. 
Restrain yourselves. The truth is that we must understand what it's there for. And there are two things that God calls us to do with our money that we must learn to do. And if we do, then God will bless us. And the the, the third, there's actually three things. The third thing is going to be our, our next point. But two in this part that we're going to turn, that we must learn to do. And the first is, we must learn to invest shrewdly. Now here's the thing. Jesus, when he talked about money, he talked a lot about money in the heart. But when he talked about how to use your money, he always said to invest it. Don't get rid of it. Always find good places to put it. Invest it shrewdly. Now, I am not the guy you need to come to to ask how to invest your money. I can tell you a minute how to give your money. I can tell you that in a minute, all right? But investing is something you need to figure out, and you invest it for the glory of the kingdom of God. You don't invest just to invest, just to build a big stockpile, but to use it for God's glory. So you invest it truly. Here's the second thing. You learn to hold it loosely. Most of you have probably heard the story of how they trapped some monkeys in Africa. They tried all these ways to trap monkeys and they couldn't figure out how to do it. And so what they did is they cut out a hole just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in, normally squeeze it in, and then they would put inside of it uh, some kind of treat, some kind of food. And the monkey would go in, grab the food, but the problem was when they tried to reach out, they couldn't get their hand out unless they let go of the food. And so what would happen is the monkey would reach in, grab the food, try to pull it out, try to pull it out, try to pull it out, couldn't, would get trapped in there and would get caught because they just wouldn't let go. What God teaches us about money is easy come, easy go. That the truth is that we need to learn to hold on to it loosely. Here's the last thing. The last thing on your handout is we must share it generously. We must share it generously. Let me tell you, there is nothing in your life that will break the bondage of financial pressure like sharing your money, like giving it away. Look at Proverbs 22.9. A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. On your handout, right after that is Proverbs 19:17 that just says, "Kindness to the poor, and I love this language, is a loan to the Lord, and He will give a reward to the lender. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and He will give a reward to the lender." Here's the thing. You know, we're in this, this mortgage crisis, right? This, this mortgage crunch, and banks are being a little more selective about who they give loans to. You can pray for us as a a family. We are scheduled to close on our house in Ripley this week. Very excited about that. Part of the problem we had in selling our house in Ripley is we had some people interested, but loans didn't think they were worthy candidates, loan officers, to get the money they needed. And so it's important these days to make sure that the person you're giving a loan to is reputable and upstanding is going to pay you back. Let me ask you this question. Do you think the Lord is a good candidate? Look at Proverbs 19.17. I love this language. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord. I can tell you this. There are a lot of people in my life I could loan money to. I don't know if they would pay me back. But if I loan it to the Lord, I'm pretty sure He's going to pay me back. And He will give you a reward to the lender. 
Now, I heard a pastor one time was preaching on that passage of Scripture, and this woman came up to him afterwards and said, you need to make sure you tell people that that's not an instantaneous reward. You can't give somebody money today and expect more tomorrow, and you can't expect that the reward will necessarily be money, but the truth is that he's going to give back to us. Look on your handout at Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. In their day and time, the thing that you saw in excess, or the way that you knew you were blessed, was how your barns were filled and how your wine was. Now I looked in the official Southern Baptist version of the Bible that they put out, and it even says new wine in that version. And the idea there is that when you give the Lord, you cannot outgive God. You just can't do it. You cannot outgive what God wants to do. Let me tell you the best way I can tell you to begin to get over the financial struggles you may have in your life is that when you get a paycheck, you take 10% and you give it to God. Now, some of you in this room have been doing that, and you say, well, my finances are are a little there. Well, the truth is some of you in this room are able to give more than 10% to God. You see, the truth is, people ask me this all the time, is there a tithe in the New Testament? Tithe's in the Old Testament. Tithe means 10%. Is there a tithe in the New Testament? And the truth is, that word tithe, that understanding of tithe, as explained explicitly, is not in the New Testament. Here's the reason. Because when God gets to the New Testament, He says the tithe is old news. What you ought to be doing now is figuring out how much I can give not how little. And the truth is that it's not about a percentage. It's about your heart. Over these last few weeks, we've been talking about improving your home and how to build it up and how to, how to do what God has called you to do in your families, in your marriage, in your relationships. And the truth is that as you think about that and walk through that, you get to the, some point when you have to deal with just, with just a... Just nuts and bolts, everyday kind of things. And one of the things that you have to deal with is money. And there are a lot, a lot of Christian couples that are struggling with money simply because they have never given their finances over to the Lord. And the most practical way to give those finances over to the Lord is just to write a check to the church. Now, people say, boy, you're starting to sound like one of those TV preachers. Here's a reality. We need money to do ministry. That's, that's reality. Went to a conference, first year I was a pastor, and the guy got up and said, there are five things they don't teach in seminary. And he went through them. One of them was, it takes a whole lot of money to do ministry. And it does. And the truth is, as a church, we do need money. But the reality is, the reason I call you to give is not because we need money. I call you to give because God calls you to give. And what his word teaches is that as a family, when you commit that even our finances are going to be turned over to the Lord and we're going to trust him completely, that's when God begins to really break through. One of the things that we did a couple of weeks ago at the business meetings was establish an Acts 1-8 mission fund. And that is specifically going to doing mission work. And one of the reasons that I believe that is because what happens in our lives is when we begin to spread out what God is doing, when we begin to give more and more and more, then God begins to bless more and more and more. 
Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says there on that handout, the world of the generous giver gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. The truth is that God calls us to give so that it expands who we are. And what He calls us to do is to constantly understand that when we give to Him, then everything we do comes under His reign and His control. Here's the last thing we're going to talk about this morning. Proverbs 11.4. It's on your handout. If not, write it at the bottom. If you don't have the the list of of verses, Proverbs 11.4. And this goes to the issue of the heart. It says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Here's what that verse is all about. It says that one day when we get to heaven, either your life on this earth ends or the time comes for Christ to come back, you're going to stand and give an account of your life before God. If you're a non-believer, He's going to ask you about your relationship with Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, Scripture teaches then you will spend eternity separated from God. That's scriptural fact. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, when you stand before Him, He's going to ask you to give an account of how you dealt with what He gave you. And here's the thing. There are no ATMs in heaven. There's nobody there to take a check or to pass a plate. When you get to heaven, your time to use what God's given you is done. And when you stand in line there and you begin to realize that it's coming time to get close up there and you're getting ready to stand before the Creator of the world who gave His life for you, there are going to be some of us that are going to think, boy, I sure wish I would have given more. But you're not. You're not going to be able to. And when you get on that day, it doesn't matter how much money you've got here, He's going to ask you about your relationships with Him and with other people. Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you get there, He's not going to say, all right, let me see your bank account, how much do you have? He's not going to ask how many great deeds you did to get a lot of money. He's going to ask about your life with others. And one of the things that we have to realize when we're in the process of building our homes, building our marriages, building our families, taking care of our kids, doing all of those things, is that money in itself is not bad. If we use it the way God intended us to use it, and that is to bless other people, to share His love, to do His work. But in many of our lives, what has happened is that money has become the master that we serve. What's scary about that first verse that we quoted today is if you look at it, it says that those the borrower becomes a slave to the lender, right? If you're a slave to the lender, that means the lender is your master. If you look in the New Testament, it says that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And the reason so many families are crumbling around money today is because of our wrong perception of what it is. And so this morning, I just ask, as you're doing your home improvement, as you're thinking about building up your marriage, your family, all that is there, 
Are you living in a way that glorifies God even in your finances? Or is this an area that you need to get right with Him? Let's pray together. This morning we're going to have a time of invitation. A time of looking inwardly at what God's called us to do. And for some of you in this room, you came this morning not with any kind of need in this area, but God, through the week or through the month, has been speaking to you. Maybe about your family, maybe about your personal relationship with Him. And this morning, during the time of invitation, you need to come not because of anything that's necessarily been said this morning or sung about this morning, but God has just laid something on your heart. This morning, we're going to have an opportunity for you to come. In just a moment, during our time of invitation, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you were today to meet your Maker, if you were to go and stand before Him and He asked about your relationship with Jesus, you wouldn't have an answer for Him. This morning, I want you to know that that there is never a better time than the present to get that straight. You may have been a church member for years. You may have been in churches. You may have walked down an aisle. You may have been in the water. But you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. There's never a better time than now. And in just a moment during our invitation, maybe you want to come for that. Perhaps you're here and you realize God is beginning to move in this church and you want to be a part of it. You feel this is where God is planting you. And, and part of the reason that God is planting you here is to give of your time and your talents and your money and all of that for His glory.